BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a money problem in this country. I mean, this is just what it boils down to. You've got, you know, a couple of dozen billionaires who own more wealth than all the rest of us, right, than half the country. And I pay a wealth tax. You know, I own a house here in Portland. And every year I have to write a check for, I don't know, six, eight thousand bucks, whatever it is. I, you know, Louise does it. I don't frankly remember the amount. But every year we have to write a check to the city and the county and pay property tax. And that is a tax on the wealth that I own, which is what most middle class people, this is my single largest asset, as it is for most middle class people, is their home. So if you've got a home that's worth a couple hundred thousand bucks and you're, you're paying, you know, five, ten thousand dollars a year in property taxes, that's a wealth tax. You are paying taxes on your wealth. And for middle class people, it's their principal source of wealth. Keep in mind, there's a difference between income and wealth. I also pay taxes on my income when I get a, a check, uh, you know, every week uh, for doing this show or every other week. Um, there's they take taxes out of it. Right. So, we, we, you know, we all pay income taxes. But a wealth tax is something that, by and large, billionaires skate on unless they happen to own property. And many of them put the property in the name of their corporation. So the corporation pays the tax on it, and it's a tax-deductible expense. If you have a corporation that owns your home and then rents it to you, it's tax-deductible. Now, most of us don't have the means to set up you know, corporate shell companies to own our various homes and things like that. I certainly don't. But the question, my question is, you know, why is it that I should pay a substantial tax, thousands of dollars every year on my principal source of wealth? Why is it that you should pay a tax every year on your principal source of wealth, but old Howard from Starbucks doesn't have to pay any tax at all on the billion dollars that he's got sitting with a hedge fund someplace or in a Swiss bank account? Why doesn't he have to pay a, t a wealth tax on his principal source of wealth? Can anybody explain this to me? I mean, I get property taxes, right? I, you know, I'm not a fan of property taxes. I, Louise and I were in, in Ireland back 15, 20 years ago. I don't know if they have changed the law since then. But we stayed with some friends who live in Ireland and, and uh, a fairly well-known writer. And, and we also got to know the guy who was the postmaster for the local post office. He drove us all over uh, Northern Ireland. And his name was Mike Mansfield, an amazing guy. And uh, he was considerably older than me. He's probably no longer with us, given how long ago this was. This might have been actually even in the 80s. And uh, he drove us all over. He took us to a bar. He taught us Gaelic. He had us, along with the, with the people in the pub, singing these songs in Gaelic. And he was like, you have a property tax in the United States, right? And I, you know, we owned a, ho a home at the time. And I was like, yeah, every year I pay thousands of dollars in property taxes. He says, you don't really own your home. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you don't pay your property tax, what happens? I said, well, the government takes my property away. And he said, how much, how much would the property tax be relative to the value of the house? And I'm like, well, you know, the house might be worth a couple hundred thousand. The property tax might be $5,000. He says, for a $5,000 bill, they're going to take your home away? Yeah. Then you don't own your home. And I'm like, where'd you get this idea from? And he's like, here in Ireland, we don't have property taxes because we want people to be able to actually own their homes. Now, billionaires would tell you 
that they don't want to have a property tax, a wealth tax, on their hedge funds. They don't want to have a wealth tax on their bank accounts. They don't want to have a wealth tax on their money bins. You know, if, if Howard from Starbucks wants to build a giant money bin in his backyard and, and, you know, fill it with gold doubloons and go diving in it, he doesn't have to pay any wealth tax on that. But I have to pay a wealth tax on my house, and so do you if you own a house. What am I missing here? This seems bizarre. If anything, we should flip this upside down like Ireland did. Ireland actually has a wealth tax. And say, you know, middle class people who own a house... Yeah, that's wealth. That's their wealth. And we're going to let them keep it. If you've scraped together enough money during the course of your life and your working career to actually buy a house, you should be able to own that house. Even if your income goes to zero and you can't afford to pay property taxes, you should be able to own that house because it's your house. It's your land. I mean, we can put limits on it. We could say, you know, all property that's, that is worth over a million dollars or over five million dollars or something like that gets hit with property taxes because, you know, the whole point of property taxes was, well, we're going to use this to pay for the local fire and police and stuff like that and the services that are protecting your property. Okay, I get that. I agree with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, when a billionaire wants to jump into politics, we should say to them, why don't you work your way up the ladder, you know? Why don't you just, like, start with city council? But in any case, you know, if Howard wants to have his multi-million dollar mansions and things, okay, cool, he could pay property taxes because they're kind of a burden on things. But the fact of the matter, if the, if the whole rationale behind property taxes is that there has to be community infrastructure to support my property, right? I have a fire department in case I do something stupid and burn my house down or somebody else does it to me, or nature does, you know, lightning. The roads need to be maintained. The local school, you know, now I absolutely think the property taxes should be completely disentangled from education because that's why, I mean, that was put into place back in the day to make sure that largely minority neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods had crappy schools to perpetuate that cycle of, of not just poverty, but of class. But in any case, so if your rationale for property taxes is that, well, you know, we need to protect your property and we're doing that as a community. Well, isn't that true of, of Howard's money bin? Isn't that true of his hedge fund? Isn't that true of his, his, uh, his banking account, his you know, millions of dollars in his bank account? I mean, you know, that needs to be protected. We have cyber security stuff here in the United States. We have courts that protect those things. We have you know, infrastructure. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we protect the wealth of really wealthy people. Shouldn't they pay a property tax on that? Or if I've hit it spot on, and what we really should be doing, you know, England has a wealth tax, France has a wealth tax, I'm, I'm pretty sure Ireland has a wealth tax, where, you know, every year they say, okay, what do you own? Well, I own $1.9 billion worth of stuff. Okay, cool. Give us 1% of it. And it's a progressive wealth tax. Average people, working class people, they don't pay a wealth tax. The wealth tax kicks in after, well, the one that Elizabeth Warren is proposing kicks in at $50 million dollars. Not of income, but of wealth. And you don't pay any tax until your 50 millionth and first dollar, and then you pay of wealth, and then you pay a tax on that. So if Howard only keeps 50 million dollars in his money bin when he goes diving in his in his Kruger Rands every morning, cool. If there's only 50 million dollars in there under Elizabeth Warren's plan, he doesn't have to pay any wealth tax on that money bin filled with gold coins that he takes his bath in every morning. But if he wants to have $51 million worth of gold coins in there, he's going to have to pay, you know, 1% or 2% of that extra $1 million every year to help support this country, to help make America function, to create an egalitarian and healthy society. You know, it's particularly bizarre. We justify the property tax by saying, well, you got to have a fire department in case your house catches on fire. Isn't your body more important and valuable than your house? Shouldn't we be all kicking into a wealth tax, or not we all, but shouldn't the people in this country who are on the top, you know, 1%, 2%, shouldn't they be kicking into a wealth tax that could provide health care for everybody in America so everybody can say, you know, if my body catches on fire, I mean, metaphorically, right, you know, cancer or something like that, a disease, you know, that there's somebody to put the fire out, and it's paid for with tax dollars. This is so straightforward. But Mitch McConnell 
says not only, oh, you can't have that, you know, my wife, Elaine Chow, she's a, a multi-hundred millionaire, you know, from her family, and I'm, I've made all this money with, well, God only knows how Mitch McConnell has made all his money. He's been in politics his whole life, but he's worth millions. And he's saying, but uh, you know what we need to do, little Mitch McTurtle, we need to get rid of the estate tax. That tax on very wealthy families, people who are passing along to somebody else a, an estate that's worth more than $22 million. That's where it's at right now. And it's a progressive tax, by the way. But you can, you can give somebody $22 million and no tax at all. Pass it along to your heirs. It is not a death tax. It's not a tax on death. It's a tax on somebody who didn't work for something, getting it. It's an income tax, functionally. And it kicks in at $22 million. And Mitch McConnell's going, we need to get rid of this. He wants to give a tax break to the Walton family, the owners of Walmart, of $63 billion. That's how much the estate tax is going to cost them when they all die. He wants to give a wealth tax, a, 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 a tax cut to the Koch brothers of $39 billion. Now, it, the, the Mars Candy family, $27 billion. The Cox Cable family, $13 billion. How much of a tax cut for 99.8% of Americans? All of us except the top 2%. How much of a tax cut does Mitch want to give us? Zero. Well, that wouldn't be prudent. We just have to support the very, very rich because they support the Republican Party, don't you know? So you and I get to pay a wealth tax on our homes. And if you're renting, frankly, you're paying a wealth tax because that house that you're renting, whoever you're renting it from is having to pay property taxes on it. Again, I'm thinking maybe we should just end property taxes or we should means test them. Property taxes don't kick in until the property is worth over a million bucks. I mean, you know, governments, particularly city governments, would have to reorganize how they, how they do things, but they could reorganize it by saying, okay, we're going to do it with a wealth tax. I mean, there's lots and lots of options. We can think about this. We're smart. We can figure this stuff out. We're America. We can look at what Ireland did and say, hey, there's a lesson there for us. What do you think? Or am I completely out in space here? I am so grateful to Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for bringing these topics into the dialogue, for shifting the Overton window, for making it acceptable for Democrats to talk about taxing rich people. Finally, again, we'll be back. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. You're listening to Tom Hartman. We've been talking about crises. And how if you look at the history of the United States, whether it's 1773 and the Tea Act, or whether it's 1860 and the start of the Civil War, or whether it was 1893 and the Great Panic, which led to the McKinley presidency, which led to McKinley's assassination, which led to Teddy Roosevelt, or whether it was the Great Crash in 1929 and World War II, which kicked off the New Deal, the Vietnam War that helped bring us the great society, that every time there has been a really big crisis in America, typically one caused by some crazed right-winger someplace, every time we've had a crisis like this, it has been followed by a progressive revolution, essentially, a progressive renewal. Is the simple reality of the Trump presidency enough of a crisis? that it's going to produce a progressive backlash. It's looking to me more and more like it is. But then that raises the larger question, which is, is it the Trump presidency 
Or is the Trump presidency a symptom of a larger and deeper crisis in America, which is that in 1930 to 1976, and through a series of decisions, 76 Buckley versus Vallejo, 78 First National Bank versus Bilotti, 2010 Citizens United, 2013 McCutcheon, through a series of these cases, the Supreme Court has handed the political process in America over to the billionaire class. And is that really the crisis? And if so, is that what's going to produce a progressive response? But I'd like to take it a step farther. 66 million Americans are at risk because of climate change. I'm talking about the polar vortex that is coming down out of the Arctic. And it's pretty amazing what's going on here and why it's going on and how Donald Trump is so stupid about it that it's like this is a crisis so here's the reality of what's going on there is a river of air that flows about a couple hundred miles south of the North Pole that flows around the top of the globe it's called the jet stream and it travels over 100 miles an hour and it is caused by a combination of the spinning of the earth plus the difference between the temperatures at the latitudes here, you know, like North America, and the temperature at the North Pole. And when the North Pole is really, really cold, and we are not, that difference in temperature sets up the jet stream and makes it rigid and strong and, and all that kind of stuff. But over the last 15, 20, 25 years, what we've seen is a brand new phenomenon, brand new in the weather history of this planet, basically. And that is that the jet stream is starting to break down. It's falling apart. It's drooling down all the way down to Florida, where it never went before. The jet stream never went south of Michigan, you know, but it's now, it's drooling all the way down to Florida. And behind it is the extreme cold air that was on the North Pole. It kind of slides off to one side of the globe, sort of like a pulling a yarmulke off the top of your head to one side of your head, you know, or a, a hat or a cap, pulling it off to the side. That's what's going on. And in fact, at the Arctic, where the cold air used to be that is drooling down on Minnesota right now, at the Arctic, in these higher latitudes over the Arctic Ocean, over the North Pole, the air is 125 degrees warmer than normal. And now we're going to have minus 55 wind chills in Chicago. Now that's colder than Mount Everest. 17,000 feet above sea level. The base camp at Mount Everest, they got a weather station there. It's 30 degrees. In Zackenberg, Greenland, it's minus 11. In Barrow, Alaska, it's minus 7. In Yellowknife, in the Northwest Territories in Canada, it's minus 5. Minus 55, a whole lot worse. What is causing this is the weakened Arctic jet stream. It's drooling down into America and bringing this minus 45 degree weather because of climate change. So what does our idiot princeling president have to say about this? As this polar vortex, I mean, Minneapolis just announced that they're shutting their schools. Brian Hurley, a meteorologist with the Weather Prediction Center, he says, you're talking about frostbite and hypothermia issues very quickly, like a matter of minutes, maybe seconds. Chicago is closing the Brookfield Zoo. It's only the fourth time in 85 years the zoo has closed because of weather. Northern Illinois could fall to a negative 55 degrees. Life-threatening temperatures. 40 degrees below normal. So what does Trump say? Right? He's got to have been watching Fox so-called news. In the beautiful Midwest, wind chill temperatures are reaching minus 60 degrees, the coldest ever recorded. In coming days, expect to get even colder. People can't last outside even for minutes. What the hell is going on with global warming? Please come back fast. We need you. Really? Donald J. Trump. Our president, who has access to the best scientists in the world. I mean, he could call up somebody at NASA or NOAA and say, what's going on? Why is, it, why is it 60 below in Chicago? And they would say, Mr. President, it's because global warming has broken down the jet stream. The temperature at the Arctic is going up six times faster than the temperature is going up in Chicago. And what that means is that because the Arctic is warming, that the temperature difference between the Arctic and Chicago is not that great. And when you have a temperature difference that's not that great, you don't have a very strong wall of air. I mean, this is why 
Why, you know, if you think back to your meteorology and paying attention to the weatherman on TV back, you know, when 30 years ago when you were a little kid or 10 years ago when you were a little kid, you think back to that and they would talk about, well, there's a big cold front coming. It's only 45 degrees behind it, and there's a, you know, warm air in front of it that's 65 degrees. That 20-degree temperature difference is going to mean thunderstorms, right? The cold front is coming through. Or a weak cold front, there's only a 5-degree temperature difference, so we might get a little bit of rain. Remember that? The bigger the temperature difference, the more violent the winds. The bigger the temperature difference, the more violent the, the tornadoes. The bigger the pressure difference, the air pressure difference, which is associated with temperature differences, is uh, hurricanes are fueled by the temperature of the ocean. The bigger the temperature difference and the pressure difference, the more violent the hurricane. This is like fifth grade science. And Donald Trump doesn't understand it. So he tweets this out. Here's a couple of other tweets that he put out. This is from uh, November. He says, brutal and extended cold blast could shatter all records. Whatever happened to global warming? And in another one, this is from uh, December 29th, 2017, he said, in the East, it could be the coldest New Year's Eve on record. Perhaps we could use a bit of that good old global warming for our country. That our country, but not other countries, was going to pay trillions of dollars to protect against, bundle up. Greg Jericho responds to Trump's tweet, you are an idiot. Wendy Harmer responds, when, where do you even begin with this weapons-grade buffoonery? Jack says, world hunger isn't real because I had breakfast this morning. Right. Uh, Jeff Tiedrichs, that I'm too dumb to understand science act really plays well with your dimwit rube worshipers, doesn't it, Donald? I mean, it is an act, isn't it? Oh, my God. You're serious, aren't you? Ryan Higgins tweets, you are a staggering moron. Liberty tweets in response to Trump's tweets, it's called climate change, you clown. David Crowley, are you kidding me now? How is this man POTUS? Climate change is putting people's lives at risk. This isn't a joke. Extreme temperatures, both high and low, are deadly. We deserve a president who will take action instead of spreading lies for political gain. So what do we do about this? What's the next step? How do you wake up Donald Trump? How do you get past the Fox News filter that is spouting the line that is being paid for by fossil fuel billionaires like the Koch brothers and the owners of ExxonMobil? How do you get past that when they're actively promoting junk science? They're actively promoting lies about climate change. And as we speak, people are facing death. There are, in all probability, in the next three days, going to be Americans who die from this weather. May not be directly from frostbite and things like that. It may be indirectly from things like their cars dying and them getting in car accidents or freezing to death along the freeway or God only knows what. But historically, when you have wild weather swings like this, and this is particularly extreme because of global climate change, because of global warming, literally global warming, breaking down the jet stream so that Arctic air can now drool down on top of us. People will die. And our president is making jokes about how, oh, gee, well, I want some global warming back. You fool. So back to my case, the Trump presidency in and of itself is a crisis on the order of the crisis that we faced with the Great Depression, on the order of the crisis that we faced after the Civil War, on the order of the crisis that we faced at the time of the American Revolution. We have a dotard, a dunce, an idiot, a narcissist, a sociopath sitting in the White House right now. And people around him sucking up to him, enabling him. Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence. And some of them are just as bad as him. Betsy DeVos, really? The woman who wants to destroy public education is in charge of public education? Wheeler, the guy who wants to destroy the EPA, is in charge of the EPA. The, the people who want to destroy the Interior Department are in charge of the Interior Department. The people who want to destroy labor in the United States are in charge of the Labor Department. I mean, it just goes on and on. Will this crisis, will this idiot boy child in the White House, will this produce the progressive renewal in America that we need? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Or is this just another blip, you know, like Reagan? Is this just another, you know, stupid administration is going to commit a, a bunch of crimes, pardon themselves, and ride off into the sunset? 
Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Time for a crazy alert. This four-story, 22-room, 8,000-square-foot castle in the Nevada desert, 900000 bucks. It's a doomsday prepper's dream home, they say. It's completely off the grid. It generates its, all of its own electricity by solar and wind. 24,000 bricks, tons of rebar. It's uh, on 40 acres. It's got its own gold mine. Okay, preppers, off you go. Get ready. Dennis in Safety Harbor, Florida. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Hey, Tom. I wanted to get your opinion on something. I am a conservative, and one of the things that I keep hearing on both uh, Progress Radio and on Fox Radio is uh, Schultz is basically being discounted as an independent run. And um, one thing I don't think a lot of people get in the media is that, you know, the general population, we're tired of politicians. And I think that he has a more serious chance than he's being given credit for. And I wanted to get your opinion of that. I disagree. I think that that was true in 2016. I think Americans were saying, okay, we'll try a businessman. You'll recall Bush and Cheney uh, promoted their candidacy as the first two CEOs ever to run for president, and we got the business, the CEO presidency, and that led us to a disaster. I mean, Cheney was an oil CEO, and what was he, what was he doing between March and November, or September, rather, of 2001? He put together the Energy Task Force, and he was dividing up the oil-bearing land in Iraq and deciding which countries were going to get it. Larry Klayman, the head of the right-wing uh, Judicial Watch group, sued and actually got that, that documentation. So. Cheney was pursuing his interests as a CEO while he was in the in the White House while he was VP. Still, we went back and we said, "Okay, we'll take another you know rich businessman," and we put in Trump. And I I think people are now to the point where they're saying, including conservatives, by the way, although Dennis, feel free to correct me, where they're saying, "No, we actually we would like somebody who actually cares about governing and wants to govern this country." I think that we're, we want somebody that governs absolutely, but we also want somebody that can hold his tongue when it comes to Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I think that goes without saying. Sure, um, sure. But that's not necessarily so, Howard Schultz either. I, you know, the, the problem with Schultz is, you know, uh, Paul Krugman actually uh, wrote a piece basically taking Schultz down that I thought was absolutely fascinating. Um, he's... His, uh, this is his, his Twitter storm. He says, on economics, Schultz is way to the right of the public. Uh, he said, as I point out in my column today, the public wants higher taxes on the rich and more spending on social programs. What fraction of voters want Social Security cuts, a staple of centrist positioning? 6%. More generally, the socially liberal, economically conservative position in the lower right quadrant is basically the empty quadrant of American politics. And boy, is it heavily represented in the green rooms on TV. For Schultz, is basically the very model of a modern centrist. Remember the Simpson-Bowles report, which induced rapture in the Beltway, called for cuts in marginal tax rates. And concern about fiscal responsibility has always been selective, Krugman says. Awards for Paul Ryan, effective silence, and the Trump tax cut blew up the deficit, et cetera. He says the point is that Schultz is especially awful in his timing and egotism. I, you know, I think he's right. You know, and I think you've got a lot of conservatives, Dennis, the old-fashioned conservatives, the Bill Crystal conservatives, the guys who, in their mind, conservative means you don't get involved in foreign entanglements. You do fight communism around the world and try to make the world safe for, for capitalism, essentially. And, and you want to privatize Social Security and you want to do away with the federal government paying for medical programs. That's classic Barry Goldwater conservatism. And those people just want somebody in the White House you know, a rash, a John McCain type, some some rational politician who who can take the government back in the direction of essentially Richard Nixon. Am I making sense, Dennis? Yeah, you are. Uh, you know, I, I said this before. I appreciate your point of view and and you know, shooting it straight. So thank you. Okay, thanks a lot, Dennis. I appreciate the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Don't you just love it when something that's already amazing gets better? Well, that's the case with the X-Chair. The makers have taken what is arguably the most comfortable and supportive office chair in the world and made it even better by introducing wider seats in the X3 and X4 models of the X-Chair. That means extra support for those of us with wider bases. The good people at X-Chair are constantly innovating, 
to help improve your working comfort and productivity. And now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com, or call 1-844-4X chair. X chair comes with a 30 day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com. Jan in Palm Coast, Florida. Hey, Jan, what's up? Hey, I think you're right on about climate change, and I think it is a disaster. I think the one thing that just boggles me is that how... The Republican Party and the conservative people can believe this isn't going to impact them. It's like they close their eyes to it. Yeah. Uh, you can change the economy, but you can't change this global warming once we've gone to a certain point. Yeah, and, and we're past that point, scary. by the way. We're past that point. Oh, the right. the, and, the Arctic ice and Antarctic ice and Greenland ice are all now past the tipping point where unless we remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, they are going to melt. It's just a matter of how long is it going to take. And I think the other thing, too, is you're right, somebody needs to lead this effort, but it has to be a lot of people leading the effort. Yeah. And how do we get there? That's well, I, 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 I don't I, know. I, I, I go back to my old metaphor that, uh, you know, politicians don't actually lead anything. What politicians right. do, a good politician does, is they see a, a parade going down the street, and it's a parade for something that they, in their gut, can agree with. And so they jump in front of the parade and hoist a flag and say, this is my parade. And everybody goes, oh, look at that brilliant leader. You know, when Bernie started yeah. talking about Medicare for all, the country was ready for it. You know, Bernie saw yeah. that parade and he jumped in front of it. Uh, you know, the media wasn't with him and that, that killed him. Jan, thank you for the call. Uh, so, I, you know, I think, frankly, I'm very optimistic and I think that the parade is here. I really, really, truly do. And I think that the Trump candidacy, the Trump presidency is a symptom of the degenerate position that the government has been put in or our country has been put in by the Supreme Court with the Buckley decision and others since then. Kitty in Boca Raton, Florida. Hey, Kitty, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Um, I have been arguing with people about global warming for a long time, and I realized that that, that argument is never going to work with people no matter what you say, no matter what the scientists say. They choose to believe politicians <laughs> over scientists. Yeah. And so I, I always try to think, well, how do you get through to people to actually make some change? If you're just having discussion, the same people who will never agree with global warming, you take those same people and you just talk to them about pollution, and they'll agree. Yep. You talk to them about global warming, they don't agree. You're right. If you talk to them about how the water is getting contaminated and how cancer is spiking in the air, just show them a picture of Beijing. Show them pictures in India and just say, do you think pollution is a problem? Yeah. And they'll all agree. And you've got over 100 million Americans right now who are drinking water that's contaminated with PFOA, this chemical that's, that's the byproduct of the manufacture of Teflon. 110 million Americans drinking this contaminated water that causes kidney cancer and other kinds of cancers and, and hypertension and things. And, and the Trump administration today says, you know, we're not going to regulate that. Yeah, but see, this is it's what nuts. I'm trying to say. It's like if you broaden the topic instead of saying global warming, which is, you know, the the, the change of our environment right. to pollution, you'll cover even more. Yeah, even more I think in South Florida and the Everglades here is a big thing for everybody. Everybody here, Republican, Democrat, they all vote for people who are trying or who say that they're going to do something about our situation with our water here. Yeah, and it's the red tides, really too. Well, no, our Everglades, well, right, tie too, but the, yeah, it's all connected. But the, the Everglades is an issue that Republicans and Democrats across the board overwhelmingly agree. So what I'm trying to say is maybe we should stop the conversation of climate change and go more broadly to pollution. Because I'm telling you, those people who believe the politicians on global warming, 
will agree with you about pol- uh, pollution in general. And yeah. that is the cause of global Kitty, warming. I would completely agree with you if I thought that we had 30 years to hash this out, but we don't. You know, the, the, They're never going to agree. Uh, I f- well, you know, there are some people who are never going to agree that the world is round. There are some people who are never going to agree that, I mean, you know, fill in the blanks, right? There are some people you just can't reach. That doesn't mean that we don't just say, okay, guys, see you later. And then we go no, ahead no. and, I mean, because we've got an existential crisis. If we don't clean this planet up in the next 10 years, 11 years now, according to the, the IPCC, we're, we're, our grandchildren are going to inherit a Blade Runner world. I know. I'm that person who goes to the beach and picks up every straw I see. I'm that person who, who does donate and put my money where, where in the things I believe in, the Everglades. Every time I go to the grocery store, I buy organic. Not because I think it's more nutritious, but just simply because I don't want the earth poisoned any more than it has to be. I'm Good really big into, like, that's my number one cause. Good on you. But, Kitty, Kitty the, the mistake that we all make in doing that is thinking that our individual actions, which as, as symbols are really important things, but as changes, they're nowhere near as important. If you, if you spent the same amount of time picking up, if you, spent, if you took the amount of time you spent picking up straws and spent that same amount of time working to elect politicians who are actually going to change policy. Well, good on I you. Do. I, you know, I it's do. really important but, that we not lose sight of that. I, I, you know, we've got no, to do that. Of course, of course. But, you know, some people, like, you also got to say to yourself, do whatever you can. People, just like some people, listen, every day they go to work, they don't have time. They don't have the extra money. They feel like they can't make change. Well, you know what? Pick up a piece of garbage, anything, everything, freaking cups. Use your voice. Talk about it. Yeah, Talk next time you're in a restaurant, anything. say, I don't want a straw. You know, they're poisoning the planet. Everything um, you, know. you can do matters. And I'm just, like I said, I'm just, I really wish when, when we're talking to the people who choose to believe a politician over the world, scientists, well, the sad thing, Kitty, is that it's not politicians. It's, it's fossil fuel billionaires who are putting those words in the mouths of politicians along with large checks. That's what's going on. Stopping progress. Those are the people we need to get through. And like I said, I've had the conversation. It's not just stopping Congress. progress. They're killing the world. I know. I know. But when I talk to people, I'm telling you, you have this conversation. The person who will say, global warming, fake hoax. And then you talk to him about polluted water. He'll agree with you on polluted water. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. We're getting redundant. Kitty, thank you for the call. And thanks for listening to SiriusXM down there in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. Alice in Chicago. Hey, Alice, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Kitty, keep up the good work. But, Tom, I just wanted to say thank you. I watch you every day. And I want to tell you that this is the worst part of my life. I have never felt so afraid and desperate and and just too much stress on my life at 77. But most of all, I'm worried about my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, that this man is going to destroy the world. And that's all I want to say. But thank you. I, since I found Free Speech TV... This is what I watch every day. Thank you. Bye. Well, thank you, Alice. I worry that we're contributing to your anxiety levels. I, you know, I, I, sometimes just knowing that somebody's with you and somebody understands how you feel and that other people are working to produce change to, to solve these problems, sometimes that can be a really healthy thing. So, you know, I hope that helps, Alice. Thanks a lot for the call. James in Mineola, Texas. Hey, James, what's up? I have a question about you're saying that Trump supporters are racist and all that because of people coming across the border, right? Okay, so what if you're an American black man and you feel the same way? Am I a racist as well? I no. mean, you have an underclass of people who have already been here for 400 years who haven't gotten their reparations, but we're so willing to take on everybody else's problems and everybody else's people when you haven't taken care of your minority population? Yeah, I, I get it, James. And, and, and I know that the Republican Party and the conservatives who fund the right-wing media machine out there are, are engaged in a multi-million dollar outreach right now into the black community to say, as they used to say to white people, they used to say to my father when he worked at an all-white tool and die shop, look out for those black people. They want your job. Now they're saying to black people, look out for those Hispanic people. They want your job. And there are some people who are buying it. I think it's a tragedy, but there's some people who are buying it. This is not, I'm not sitting here saying we need to massively increase immigration. That's not what this is about. Keith in Wilson, Wyoming. Hey, Keith, what's on your mind today? Premonition alert, Tom. Premonition alert. 
I just saw the two candidates for the 2020 election, and it's really confusing. They're two white, blonde women wearing glasses named Elizabeth. While you and Bill Maher are freaked out about Wyoming's two senators, you're not paying attention to our lone representative. Oh, Liz Cheney? She, she's on the Sunday talk shows looking extremely reasonable. Yeah, I know. I think Elizabeth Warren is just going to slog right through. In fact, there's a lot of speculation, forgive me, Keith, that Liz Cheney is going to be the next Speaker of the House when the Republicans finally take the House back. Well, I, I think we're going to hear from her a long time before that. She has been very subtly anti-Trump lately, and I, you know, in my premonition, I just saw the candidates. I didn't see whether she won the primary against Trump or if Trump had already quit. And I'm not seeing the vice president candidate yeah. either. I don't think but, Liz Cheney uh, is going to be running for president anytime soon, but I think that she is going to be running either for the Senate to replace Mike Espy if he retires, uh, your senator from Wyoming, or that she wants to be Speaker of the House. She is absolutely a rising star. She's got you know hundreds of millions of dollars behind her. She's got billionaires supporting her. She's got... Uh, you know, <laughs> she's got the 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 black soul. Oh, that that almost sounds racist, doesn't it? What what how what's the how would you describe it? You know, the 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 deformed heart of of Dick Cheney. I mean, you know, it's just the the whole Cheney you mean, curse. You mean Spawn of the Dark Lord? Look, yeah. I live three blocks go. away from both of them. Okay, wow. so I I got to be nice here. Uh, I guess. <laughs> I guess. But you're just making, you're completely making my case for me. What we can hope is that if they both get the nomination, they'll do paper, rock, scissors, and one of them will dye their hair brown. So it won't be so confusing. Yeah. Uh, keep an eye on Liz Cheney. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that the calculation she's making is that being slightly anti-Trump is going to get her on TV more often, and she's trying to build a national profile. The question and is, right what's now, she trying to do? Kevin McCarthy's wingman, too, just like Barrasso oh. is. I know, because oh. she wants to replace Kevin McCarthy, and someday he's going to figure out that she's got, you know, a shiv in her hand, you know, and he's going to be going, at two, Brute? On the line with us is, uh, and by the way, we've been talking about crises and what is a crisis and is this current crisis of the Trump presidency itself producing a sense among Americans that the crisis is as real as, for example, the Great Depression, which produced enormous progressive change or the Vietnam War? Is it possible? And might this be the inflection point that is going to drive genuine progressive reform in the United States? We'll see. Meanwhile, Wendell Potter's on the line with us, former health insurance industry executive, author of Deadly Spin and Nation on the Take. He is the founder of Tarbell.org, T-A-R-B-E-L-L.org, which examines the impact of money on politics on millions of Americans. WendellPotter.com, also the website, two L's, two T's. And you can tweet him at Wendell Pott, W-E-N-D-E-L-L-P-O-T-T, or Tarbell.org. Hey, Wendell, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Tom. I saw this article, it seems like a few weeks ago, and I've seen a number of stories around this, and I thought of you suggesting that the uninsured rate, the number of Americans who are lacking health insurance right now, is the highest it's been in five years. That what the Trump presidency has done has reversed the progress that the Affordable Care Act made at reducing uninsured rates, and instead is doing the opposite, is causing more and more people to lose their insurance. First of all, is that in fact the case? And if so, how are the Trumpistas pulling this off? Well, in a number of ways. It is correct. The number of uninsured is creeping back up and it's gaining some speed. One reason is because the Republicans in Congress a year before last repealed the penalty for remaining uninsured. And that went into effect on January the 1st. So there is no penalty now for remaining uninsured, which was in the original Affordable Care Act. That's one thing. The other is the Trump administration has not allocated any funds for advertising open enrollment, which took place at the end of last year. They've cut funding, as Republicans in Congress have as well, too, for training navigators, the people who were funded in the early days of the first years of the Affordable Care Act, and certainly during the Obama administration. To, to help, help you people, sign up, basically. To help you sign up. So all of that has been coming together. And some people think that the Affordable Care Act has even been repealed. It's no longer in effect because of all the uh, noise around that over years past. The other thing, though, Tom, is that I think we would see this even if Trump were not at the White House, because despite all the good the Affordable Care Act has done, 
it still doesn't help a lot of people, particularly those who have employer-sponsored health insurance, because mm-hmm. employers are constantly having their workers pay more and more of the cost of the premiums and pay more out of their own pockets for health care. So a lot of people are just saying, this is not a good value anymore, and they're taking the risk. Mm-hmm. Wow. And also, there's a big problem here that the Supreme Court blew a hole in the side of Obamacare when they said individual states can decide whether or not to expand Medicaid. And now you've got states like Alabama, I believe, you would know which one's better than me, I suppose, who are saying, we're going to add work requirements. We're going to say, if you don't work a certain number of hours a week, or if you don't prove that you're looking for work those hours of the week, you don't qualify for an insurance. In some states, I think it was Kentucky, maybe I'm wrong on that. Kentucky. Yeah, that they even shut down the website where you have to report when you look for work in the evening hours, so it's like even harder for people. And so like literally thousands of people a week are being dropped off the Medicaid rolls because they're unable to comply with these so-called work requirements. It's absolutely true. It's actually disdain for people who don't have a lot of money. This really began in Arkansas. They had, a, I think, a, it may have been the first state that had some kind of a work requirement. Indiana followed suit pretty soon after that and some other states. And Kentucky had one of the best exchanges, and people were signing up. And it was such a stark contrast between what was happening in Kentucky and my native state of Tennessee, which has not expanded Medicaid uh, yet today. But unfortunately, people are having this additional hurdle to be able to get the benefits that they need in Kentucky and elsewhere. So that you're exactly right. That is another way that people are being put back into the ranks of the uninsured. Right. I guess the good news in all this, Wendell, is with Kamala Harris's town hall, and that is that a candidate who, in most other regards, would have been considered kind of a a democratic centrist, as it were, somebody who's not unwilling to take money from banksters, for example, has come out and said, Medicare for all. This is where we have to start. Medicare for all. That seems like a good sign. It's very, very significant that she did that. And she had said previously that she supported it. But by stating that as she announced her candidacy for president, I think it was very notable. In fact, most of the candidates who've been or potential candidates who are looking at entering the race have said that they embrace this as well, too. And Tom, as you may know, a new version of improved Medicare for all will be introduced in the House in early February. And there's also a Medicare for All caucus, a number of Democrats, mostly in the House and some in the Senate, who've signed on to support this, is gaining momentum. And as a consequence of that, the insurance industry, the drug companies, the big for-profit hospital chains and others, they're pulling their resources to come out guns blazing against this. They've already started doing it. And I'm going to be keeping an eye on this and writing about it as we go forward. Right. But the big question I think all Americans have to ask is why would we take, when we're spending a couple of trillion dollars a year on health care, why would we want to take 20 percent off the top and hand it to six giant corporations so that they can give their senior employees literally hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation? Why would we do that? We've done it because we have been doing something like that for a long time, and I certainly know from my years in the insurance industry, and in fact, I was a beneficiary of a lot of money that is was paid to someone whose job doesn't even exist in other countries. I was a you know, head of corporate communications and the chief PR guy. In most, in most countries, there's no need for that, obviously. Right. Uh, but we've been doing it for a long time. So much of our money that we pay in premiums goes into the pockets of health insurance company executives and into the pockets of shareholders of insurance companies and drug companies and hospital companies and medical device manufacturers and a lot of other middlemen in their system. Yeah, this is like uh, peak Reaganism, you know, privatize everything. Yeah, have everything exactly. run on the profit motive. And we're seeing what the consequences are. It's been held out as something that would be more efficient, but it's the opposite of that. It has gotten us to the point of market failure. And I think more and more people are realizing that the free market just does not work in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking with Wendell Potter, the former health insurance industry executive, the author of Deadly Spin and Nation on the Take, the founder of Tarbell.org, WendellPotter.com, the website. Wendell, what's Tarbell up to these days? Well, we've hired a managing editor, by the way. We're growing. We're moving forward. Dina Razor is our new managing editor. Mm-hmm. We're broadening our coverage to look at the environmental issues and the military-industrial complex. Some of our next stories, Tom, we're going to be looking at, kind of related to our, the first part of our conversation, about the Democrats that are taking money from healthcare special interests, in particular the Democrats that are serving on key committees and are chairing key committees in the House. 
because that'll be that'll be something important to know as we have hearings in Congress on Medicare for all, uh, whether or not they actually move forward with it. Great stuff. Wendell Potter, check it out. Wendell, thank you so much for dropping by today. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much. And keep up the great work. You're doing God's work there. Wendell Potter. We'll be back with our ongoing conversation about what kind of crisis are we facing in the United States right now? I mean, people are going to die from this global warming-induced freeze we've got. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And we're all sitting around going, climate change is an existential threat. How do we respond to it? With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com T-H-O-M. For three months free with a one-year package, visit expressvpn.com Tom to learn more. Kurt in Beverly Hills, California. Hey, Kurt, what's up? Hello, Tom. Sound like you're, you're getting a bit tired of all this mess going on in Washington. Freaked so. out, yes. <laughs> but, yeah, we got to fight the good fight, Kurt. We have no alternative. What's up? Yeah. I don't know if you can remember the very first time I called your show back in 2014, but one of the first conversations or topics that I brought up to you is that I told you that I had completed some research and all things had indicated that there is going to be a concerted effort, I won't say a conspiracy, but a concerted effort by some people who fervently believe in white supremacy and were hellbound on infiltrating the upper echelons of our federal government. Uh, do you remember that, that line of reasoning? I, I used to Vaguely, but Kurt, it's, it's happened. You, you know, if, if that's what you said at the time, you were a prophet. Okay, well, I wasn't a prophet, but my mother, when I was young, uh, used to talk about this thing called premonition. Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't a mind reader, you know, it, neither was I, it, but she said that with enough information, there are just some people that are tuned in to what's going on around them so much that sometimes you can get what's called a premonition. Yeah, it's like and being really good at putting two and two together. Right, right. And so I had come across some white supremacy interviews on YouTube by former Ku Klux Klan Grand Dragon, and he laid out what his ideas of white supremacy were. He even mentioned that our uh, our current president by name in 2010 and how he was trying to recruit him and wake up the Aryan inside of him Hmm. and said that he was trying to get him to realize how powerful the quote-unquote white man is and that if we would just seize our destiny and just take control of it, that there would be nothing that could stop them. And he was actively trying to recruit people of power and take the country back. And that's when 2010, you had that, that slogan going around, you know, we're going to take, take our country back. And Sharon Engel with the Second Amendment remedy, if we can't take our country back and, and all that crap. Mm-hmm. So, I remember. So I was in tune with all that. And I started digging in. And I, I, I kid you not, I've got over a thousand hours of research in on white supremacy and what's been going on. And I want to share something with you because um, this is not a symptom right now, Tom. This is a culmination of the continuance of the Third Reich, period. We need to just understand that just because these folks are not burning crosses on the White House lawn and wearing white hoods, that just because we don't see it, that it's not happening. They are very fond of Nazi symbology, shall we say. Now right. you've got all these white high school students doing, doing Nazi salutes and you know, freaking out their schools and stuff. I mean, it's, it's okay. become a thing. Right, right. And so let me, let me digress just a bit and, and ask you a question. Do you know how uh, in recent times we've noticed how after people like Whitaker and Barr throw up some kind of flare of a praise on Fox News, two, three months later they end up on the cabinet? Yep. And the Supreme Court justice got Kavanaugh? Yep. You know, it's like it's just a matter of time after he 
do his flare up. Well, the Koch brothers, when they pledged to donate to conservative issues, their pledge was $889 million, not $800 million. Right. 88 stands for Heil Hitler. 9 stands for Aryan Nine Commandments, written by Jacob Wilhelm Hauer. Huh. Okay, Kurt, I, you know, I'm sorry we're out of time, but solid stuff. Thank you, Kurt. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Would you like to hear special content where we talk about, you know, what the billionaires are up to or climate change or the newest things in science? There's all kinds of great content like that. That's also available. The place to find all this is the Tom Hartman channel over on Patreon. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. And there... When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show every day, anytime you want, any place you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. Our book today is Just Another N-Word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox. His life in the... Um in the Black Panther Party. This is from chapter five, page 47. Uh, the chapter is titled, Use What You Got to Get What You Need. Before we entered into a direct relationship with the Panthers, our group had wanted to prove our worthiness by our actions. Since that was no longer in question, contact was made and a rendezvous fixed to meet at Huey's Pad on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. I don't remember much about that first gathering other than meeting David Hilliard, the Panther Party's chief of staff for the first time. The only thing that stands out in my memory is a question from Huey as we were sipping coffee. He asked if I didn't think it better to be properly equipped before going into action. He suggested it was best to first rip off the necessary funds to get everything we needed in advance of launching a major effort. I had practically memorized his, his essay, The Correct Handling of a Revolution, in which he spoke of teaching by example. And so I blurted out the first thing that came to mind, which was, use what you got to get what you need. After a long, hot summer of 1967, with the rebellions in Newark, Detroit, and elsewhere, we felt that our preparations had, at least, put us on the same level as the rest of the country, and that the revolution would not pass us by. Our San Francisco group started attending and participating in any and all functions relevant to black people, and we tried to get to know everyone in our area associated with the struggle. We also continued our community meetings. News of the death of Che Guevara in October of that year had us walking around in a stupor for a while, and although it came as a severe blow to the international struggle for freedom and justice of all people, we were proud to be among those who had responded to his battle cry and had picked up the fallen arms. Huey asked if we would conduct a meeting on Hunter's Point for him. He was supposed to go, but something had come up and he couldn't make it. We were honored that he thought enough of us to ask, and we were more than enthusiastic to do whatever he wanted. It was at that meeting that we had a new surprising experience. We met our first resistance in the form of Adam Rogers. He was supposed to have been the biggest, baddest N-word on Hunter's point, but when we encountered him, he came across like an Uncle Tom. He seemed to be impressed with our firearms demonstration, but he was violently against the idea of black people arming themselves for self-defense. He was convinced that would increase repression, even though history proved him wrong. When we examine the history of repression of black people, the only time there was significant decline in police violence and murders perpetrated against blacks was precisely the period when blacks were organized and had access to guns. Given the wave of terror and violence against blacks that continues to sweep the country, I truly believe there is a lesson to be learned from that fact. Rogers was one of the wounded in the Hunter's Point Rebellion of the year before, and a photograph of him had been used by the news media to illustrate articles on the riots that broke out following the killing of a black teenager by police that September. Because of that, we were even more surprised by his reaction. It was not until later that we discovered that the administration of San Francisco Mayor Joseph Alito had sent in money after the rebellion and had bought off the so-called bad N-words. The same technique was used from coast to coast. Despite Rogers, most everyone seemed to like what we had to say and really related to the firearms demonstration. Several people wanted to take courses in handling weapons, and so I fixed a rendezvous for the following Saturday at the parking lot of the abandoned shopping center right on top of Hunter's Point. The next day I arrived at the point at 7 in the morning in order to get set up before people began to gather. There wasn't going to be any target practice, but I would be firing a few shots in the air by way of demonstration. I knew that would pose no problem as far as the police were concerned, 
Due to their racism, whenever they heard shots on the point, they generally looked the other way. Once, during a dispute between two gangs, shooting broke out, and instead of police coming in to break it up, they sealed off the area and let them shoot it out. Gun battle lasted 24 hours, and the police didn't return until the next day. At around 8 o'clock, I saw David Hilliard's car driving up, which I found surprising because we had only seen each other a couple of times before. As the car approached, I recognized Emery Douglas and George Murray. Everyone had strange looks on their faces that made it clear that something was wrong. Damn, Huey had been shot and captured. He had shown up at David's, wounded and bleeding heavily. There was real concern for his life, so David drove him to the hospital and left him on the steps, then drove straight to San Francisco to find me. He said Huey had asked him to ask me to help out in the aftermath, specifically dealing with the passenger who had been in Huey's car at the time of the shootout, Officer John Frey of the Oakland Police, who'd been killed. There was also the problem of the guns Huey had stockpiled. I'll never understand why David didn't just bring the guns with him, but he hadn't. And I was obliged to go back into the area, get everything, and get back out safely. That might sound easy, but the shootout had occurred less than three hours before, and there was one policeman dead and one seriously wounded, so it was hot over in Oakland, to say the least. There was no time to go by the house and unload the guns I had on hand for the training, so I followed David back to Oakland with a trunk full of weapons. David took me into the backyard of a house that had a lot of weeds and a stack of old lumber in which he had stashed the gun. In his state of excitement, he couldn't remember exactly where the pistol was, and while we were looking, an elderly black woman came out of the house next door and asked what we were doing. David kept searching and didn't look up. She then said, if you don't come out of there, I'm going to call the police. And it continues from there. Just another N-word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox. There is no focus in the media. I mean, you know, I heard this whole conversation, uh, Joe Scarborough's show, about the wealth tax and about the income tax, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. No discussion at all about how the rich shelter their income. How I'm sure Joe Scarborough is sheltering his income because he's got a multi-million dollar income. It's time, in my opinion, for us to start taxing the billionaires. I mean, again, if I have to pay a wealth tax on my house, why do they not have to pay a wealth tax on their hedge fund? on their Swiss bank account. I don't get it. You know, why is it just my house? Why is it only the middle class in America pays a wealth tax? Can anybody explain that to me? Anyhow, we'll continue the conversation tomorrow. In the meantime, have a great afternoon. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.